Welcome back to another episode of the Sunday Sauce. I have a special man here who was already on last year, but he's back to talk about his Senate race. He got 43% of votes against Chuck Schumer. Unheard of. Unheard of. And the first African-American to run against Chuck Schumer, I believe, right? In the history of the state, I don't think we've ever had a African-American run for Senate for either party. So, uh, look, we, we didn't go for some type of... Uh, a history-making uh, point on the scoreboard. I think we ran for the purposes that we laid out last time we spoke uh, to make sure New York had somebody fighting for them down in D.C. The disappointing part is that Chuck Schumer remains uh, in power 42 years and counting. Uh, the good news is that I think there are enough New Yorkers who are waking up to the reality that the emperor has no clothes, mm -hmm. that these Democrats do not have the best interests of the 19 million and shrinking to call New York State home anymore. And I think as we move forward, there will be opportunities for people up and down the ballot uh, to demonstrate that conservative stewardship is the way forward if New York is to become an empire state again. So, Joe, I was with you on election night. We were at Lee Zeldin's thing, you know, the, the media kind of pissed me off, right, because they called it way too early. Well, look, it, it's crazy, right? You think about this. Last time Chuck Schumer ran for a re-election, he won by over 3 million votes. In the entire history of his time in the Senate, uh, he has uh, won by an average margin of 2.6 million votes. We're going to end up, again, with 43 44% of the vote. Who knows? They're still counting votes in some places. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's it statistically implausible for them to have had enough votes to make a determination at 906 who was going to win the race. And that type of, uh, you know, machinations, as you would call it, leads reasonable people to believe uh, that there are problems with the way that our elections are conducted. So I think, again, as much as the media loves to bang on the table and talk about these people wearing tinfoil hats that are out to subvert our democracy, they need to take a look in the mirror and understand the role they play mm -hmm. um, in fanning the flames of division that lead a plurality of Americans across the political spectrum, not just Republicans, independents, and some Democrats as well, to believe uh, that we are not necessarily getting the type of stewardship in the conducting of our elections that is commensurate with the republic that we love. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and before you came here uh, to the studio, I was looking at the map just to refresh my memory. And the, literally all New York state, not the city, is pretty much just red. You, you murdered them. You murdered them up there. But unfortunately, in every election, New York City decides the outcome of, of you know. Yeah, look, I, I think for us, you know, in the recap, right, you look at places that we could have done better. I think we certainly could have done better in Erie County. I think there were some structural issues there. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, again, it comes down to the fact that, number one, uh, the man has been in office longer than I've been on this earth. Uh, and number two, and that's not uh, hyperbole. That's an actual fact. Right, right, right. right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 39 years old. He's been in office now going on 43 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's the name ID that's baked in, the fact that he is not just our senior senator but the Senate majority leader for the nation, and also the fact uh, that over the last course of the campaign, by some accounts, I mean, he spent over $9 million on TV ads over the last two <laughs> weeks of the campaign alone. So Overall, we were outspent 40 to 1. If you right. look at the money that he spent in-state versus mm -hmm. what he spent out-of-state, uh, we were still outspent over 30 to 1. Uh, so that is the frustrating part for me, looking at 
the reality of our race, where statistically speaking, we had the best opportunity that we've had uh, in over four decades uh, to really have a Republican take a Senate seat. And then we have people down in D.C. who raise money saying that they want to take uh, Chuck Schumer out as majority leader and yet quite literally did not send us a Domino's pizza in the effort <laughs> to make sure that we could beat him. So that is what people need to <laughs> look at. Funny. Make sure that you find candidates that you like, that you support them directly, uh, because if you leave the party to their own devices, they're going to make decisions that in many ways defy logic. I was just getting to that. I was like, do you think you, you received enough GOP support in the state? I don't think it's a matter of opinion. Uh, the facts are in the pudding, as they say, right? right? Men right. lie, women lie, numbers don't lie. That's right. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars were raised in the effort to make sure that Republicans could take back the Senate, and not a single dime of those resources were expended in the state of New York. Wow. Uh, I can't tell you why that is, um, but I will tell you that it was arguably uh, political malpractice of the highest degree, because even if you didn't believe that Joe Pinion was going to beat Chuck Schumer, logic would dictate that spending money in a state where the man was spending millions of dollars, he didn't phone it in right. uh, from home, right. uh, it would force him to spend even more money, which means, guess what? He doesn't get to send money to Arizona to try to make sure Blake Masters doesn't win. He doesn't get to send right. money to Georgia to make sure that we have Herschel Walker in the dogfight of dogfights and losing. So the impact of not supporting the Republican, whoever that Republican was going to be, in the state of New York, when the seat was truly in some ways in play, mm -hmm. had an impact all across the country that no one wants to talk about. And so, yes, I think in many ways, you know, you had a, a competitive gubernatorial race that people felt we needed to win to save our state. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability of Lee Zeldin to build uh, a grassroots organization across the state, I think, helped all of us. Uh, but at the end of the day, I remind people, uh, the last time Chuck Schumer was on the ballot, he ran with a man named Donald J. Trump. Uh, and his opponent was still defeated by over 3 million votes. So, mm. uh, yes, I think the reality was Chuck was not the same Chuck, but also we were not the same run-of-the-mill candidate, and I think it was a missed opportunity. But we moved forward, uh, and I think tried to find new ways to not only help our state, but also to open the eyes of the public to realize mm -hmm. that, yes, you can be a proud Republican, but that does not mean that you have to condone all of the things the Republican Party does in your name. Correct, correct. Um, what do you think Republicans, like, listen, we show video, I'm, like, you know, I'm running for the city council myself. I show my people in my district how the crime is up and inflation is up and, and you know, this quality of life is, is down. What do we have to do as Republicans in New York City to win this city? Tell me, Joe, do you know? I think it's twofold, right? I, there is the battle and then there is the war. And I think if you look at things like city council races, those are the battles in mm -hmm. pursuit of the ultimate war, which mm -hmm. is how do you get the entire city rowing together with common sense policies? Uh, I think on a district by district level, you have to try and take those statistical, th those, you know, those stats and turn them into reality, right? It's one thing to talk about inflation. It's another thing to talk about how there's not a single bodega within a two-mile radius of the district where you can buy eggs at a decent price. Uh, it's one thing to talk about the fact that crime is up. It's another thing to be able to show how Kevin Bacon's six degrees of separation, not a single person in the district can escape either the rise in rapes and sexual assault or the rise in homicide or the rise in shootings. So I think we have to do a better job of drilling home that our outrage is connected to people, not just the politics. When you connect mm -hmm. the pain of the people to the reality of your candidacy, 
I think there are a lot of people who are willing to respond because people are across the spectrum disillusioned with politics because they feel as if everyone is lying to them. And that's, I think, is what we as a party miss as well when we try to talk to communities that typically do not align with us politically, be that African-American communities, Hispanic communities, uh, whether we understand that culturally they are aligned with the values of conservatism, politically they feel as if everyone is lying to them, and in a world where every politician is going to lie to them, they would much rather at least align with a party they feel is going to be more sensitive to their needs, even if they're going to lie about wanting to address them. So, <clears throat> you th- I, I do you think I, the Republican Party pretty much seems like like they're done with Trump, right? Like, I mean, let's say a majority of them. Would you say? I I think there is what happens in the corridors of power, and there's what happens on Main Street. Mm-hmm. I've said many times. Look, it, it's quite clear that the establishment wants to go another way. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the minute that uh, the last polling booth closed and a little bit before that even, it was all this midterm was a direct result of Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hard truth is it is a direct result of political malpractice down in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that notwithstanding, uh, I, I think, look, there are, there are people uh, on Main Street who love Trump, love Trump policies, mm-hmm. but believe that it's going to be difficult for him to win and recognize we have no choice but to win in 2024 if we're going to save this country. Mm-hmm. We might not have a country uh, to save come 2028. It'll be it's America true. in name only. So I think the urgency that is baked into 2024 leads some people saying, do we take a chance when we believe, as I do, that any single Republican can and should win uh, in 2024 if we just run on the reality that's smacking Americans in the face? I will also say that if you look at the nature of primary politics, I don't know a single Republican that can beat him. Mm. Um, it's if he just uh, I remind people 2016 back before Trump was truly the Trump as we know him today. Uh, there are more people who voted for people not named Donald J. Trump in the primaries than voted for Donald J. Trump. He mm. still won the nomination effectively running away. Uh, because it was so divided. And so in a world where Nikki Haley is going to hop in, and in a world where Mike Pompeo is going to hop in, even a world where even if he gets a mano-a-mano fight with Ron DeSantis, don't tell me how how Ron DeSantis is going to win. Tell me how Donald Trump is going to lose. Mm -hmm. When you remember that we have winner-takes-all primaries, it doesn't matter if Trump gets... 49% 49% and you get 46%, he gets all the delegates, right? right? And that that's the reality. He gets 51%, you get, you know, 40 you get 48, 47. There's no there's no second prize. There's no silver you know, silver medal that you get for the high, you know, the the high pat on the back of being able to right. go toe to toe with him. So <laughs> that's the political reality that people seem to forget right. in between this process being like, oh, great, we're doing well here, we're doing well here. No, you lost here and you lost there. That's right. why uh, Mitt Romney got all those uh, silver medals back in 2008 and John McCain was still the nominee right. because there is no crying in baseball and there is no silver medal in Republican primary politics. That's right. I was going to say, unlike this new woke culture we have, not everyone gets a trophy. In, in the primary, you know, that's it. If you win the primary, you win the primary. There's no second place trophy. There's no third place trophy. Yeah. So, um, so but getting back to the Trump thing, do you think Trump's endorsement of Zeldin hurt him or helped him? In New think, York, what I, would you think? I, I don't think it hurt. I mean, the reality was, I mean, they were already sending flyers to every single person in the state saying that Lee Zeldin is Donald Trump before mm. Trump endorsed him. True. I, I, so I don't think that's the reason we lost. The numbers, again, tell the tale of the tape. 
we effectively got as close to presidential turnout from Republican voters across the state mm -hmm. as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, we got uh, outrageously large portions of the conservative base to come out across the state. The people who stayed home were independents. Mm -hmm. The reason I got in this race against Chuck Schumer back uh, on January 17th a year ago was because we knew that he was deadly uh, underwater uh, with independents. Mm -hmm. I mean, he from when we got in that race, he was at around 41% with independents, and he hadn't cracked 45% in 12 months, right? So that deficiency with independent voters led us to know that he was vulnerable in a state where we now had more registered independents, non-affiliated voters than registered Republicans. Mm. And in the end, we didn't build a large enough tent. Uh, for our purposes, we didn't necessarily have the resources we would have liked to have gone out there and make as many direct appeals to independents. But I think if you look from Lee Zeldin's results to Michael Henry's results for AG, we just didn't get enough independents off their couch and into the into the booth. Mm. Um, and I think that we have to have a real conversation about why that was the case. And I think that some ways we spend a little bit too much time preaching to the choir. Uh, we have to go out there into the world to meet with people that don't already align with us. Yes, we have to do the work of motivating our base in a state where the base can be a little bit depressed. We're like Eeyore, oh dear. We're not going to win. <laughs> right. It's just the same old, that's, same that's, old history That's what I repeating. feel. That's exactly so, what I feel like. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. we have to do the base, the work of energizing that base. Mm -hmm. But there's there's additional work that has to be done. And I think that that can be facilitated if we have a more coordinated effort. I think that's what we're seeing right now with the race to be the next party chair for the state of New York. There's yes. going to have to be somebody that understands that the business of party building doesn't happen over an 18-month period every four years. Mm -hmm. We have to do the business of building connectivity with communities in between these cycles that allows us to be able to not have to start from scratch every time we have a new person running for office, no matter what it is. So we have the opportunity right now with the largest Republican uh, delegation we've had in Congress in a generation to be able to do that work. Uh, that work starts now. It should have already started. And I think coming down the stretch here, uh, we have the potential to build a new Republican Party. But the fine print to that is we have to get busy. We have to get active. Mm -hmm. We have to start engaging with everyday people where they live on the things that they care about. Do you, do you think, so, I, you know, I think kind of also happened with the whole Lee Zeldin governor thing, right? I don't think a lot of people know how um, laws get passed in this state, you know, right? So when Lee Zeldin said back in the day before he ran, he's against abortion, right? Whether he's for or against abortion, in New York State, the Senate is, and House is, strictly Democrat. So that law would have to get through them. To, and and Lee Zeldin wouldn't, wouldn't he can't you know veto it he just can't do it so I don't I, I didn't foresee um, I just don't think people knew that like oh just because we have a uh, anti-abortion governor that he's just going to automatically change law it obviously doesn't work like that I think that the problem is that we have a complicit mainstream media right that depending on their political sensibilities and when I say mainstream media I include conservative media mm -hmm. in that as mm -hmm. well right mm -hmm. there's a certain level of corporatism that's baked into this. Right? I, I went from being the guy who had his own TV show to being the guy who had to beg media to cover me. Um, <laughs> so, so crazy, dude. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, so uh, there is a little bit of that, but I, I think to your original point, politicians consistently lie 
about how laws get made. They are consistently willing to lie to the public about things that are outside of their purview. Right. You, you've got Chuck Schumer running around the state telling people that somehow I'm going to be the reason why they don't have access to abortion. That is categorically false. The Supreme Court has said uh, that abortion is the purview of the states, which mm -hmm. means not only do I have no authority to change uh, the laws uh, as it relates to abortion as a United States senator, that also means that Chuck Schumer would have no authority right. to impact He could just be an advocate for it, that's all. Right, and yeah. so no one calls him out when he says this. No one you know, files a complaint and says that the mailers that he spent millions of dollars on sending to every single person in the state, including Republican women, mm -hmm. are filled with lies. Mm. They just say, yes, of course, these Republicans are hostile to abortion. Right. And, and on the other side, you have people uh, on, in our own party who, when it suits them, uh, will say that they're going to do things that they know they can't do right. with the vested authority they have for whatever office they're running for. So mm -hmm. I think we have to stop allowing politicians to lie to us. We have to stop uh, saying that we are going to go to power and then pass laws that break the law, even if it's for something that we agree with. Mm -hmm. There's a level of honesty that has to be baked back into our politics. The dishonesty is not only ruining the trust with the people, it's also undermining our ability to govern and get things done. Right. So to, to your example, how you say how politicians should be more honest, I was actually uh, speaking at the Queens Central Republican Club the other night and uh, George Grasso, who went before me, who's running for D.A. as a Democrat, but very, very moderate guy. Um, one of these people asked him, what's what's your uh, what's your take on mandates and the vaccine mandates? And he had a very simple answer, which I thought was good. My race, my position has nothing to do with that. So I'm going to answer that question. Right. And again, People might get upset. They, oh, people might, were upset. Right. <laughs> yeah. right? And, but, and, but I think yeah. it's an honest answer. Now, right. I, I would have encouraged him probably to give his personal opinion. Right? right. But I can understand that somebody who is running to not only be an elected official, but also an officer of the court. Correct. Why he wouldn't want to get people confused or have him thinking he's making promises that he cannot uphold. So mm -hmm. I think we should spend less time getting angry with politicians to tell us the truth right. and actually spend more time being grateful that there are a few people out there who are willing to run for office, but at the same time unwilling to lie to get the job. Right. Yeah, that's that's the thing I'm facing also in my race. Like I have a lot of these crazy liberals and some independents asking me about social issues. And, and I was like, city council has nothing to do with abortion, has nothing to do with gay rights, none of this. This is all decided by the higher powers of New York State and the federal government. So I just it has nothing to do with my race. Well, I think at the end of the day, right, people want to know that they're represented by people who empathize with or them, who recognize right. their life. I don't have to agree with you on everything, and I don't know when we got to this point where people feel as if somehow uh, we are required to agree on everything. The mm -hmm. world can't function like that. No, of and course if, not. And, and to be clear, America is designed to have protections for those who hold the minority opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why we have the Bill of Rights, which is one of the most anti-democratic pieces uh, <laughs> of, of legislation or, or, right. or dictates that you're ever going to find in government. Right. right? There's nothing democratic about the Bill of Rights, but there is something uh, that is historic about the Bill of Rights. And so I think when you look at it from that prism, yeah, there, there are th aspects of a functional society that should make you uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This republic that we love 
it is not supposed to be comfortable. You have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but that's how you end up having a world and a country where everyone's opinions, rights, and liberties are respected. This country was built on contradicting contradicting opinions and, and people fighting and this and that. I mean, sh- shit, we, we threw tea in the Boston Harbor Against the British, I mean, like you know, like people representation without taxation, right? Like, yeah, what, what's up? You know, it's look. I I just think that in some ways we've lost our way mm-hmm. because people want what they want when they want it. I I think you know we saw this past week, right? Where we have all these woke people. They're mad at Byron Donalds. They're sending him copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> I mean, it, let's be very clear. That's bigotry. Yes, right? of course, 100%. And so I, I think the problem is that we have all these people on the left who in the aftermath of Trump, and I would venture to say before Trump, but Trump just forced all of this vile to the surface. They have adopted an ends-justify-the-means approach to politics. Mm-hmm. So uh, they have no problem going to the Young Republican Gala in New York City and yelling racial epithets at Rob Smith or myself mm-hmm. because somehow the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. So those same people who are members of the press will write an article about the bigotry inside the building. Right. And somehow they're blind to the reality that they were the ones who injected the bigotry in the first place. Correct. Or they were standing right next to somebody who was also a member of the press who was engaging in some of the worst racial tropes in our generation, in our country. So these are the things that we have to talk about. If you're if you're going to be a person that says, I take a stand against bigotry, great, do it all the time. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be a person that's mad because President Trump says there were many fine people on both sides at Charlottesville, that's your right. Mm-hmm. But then don't be blind to the fact that you are quite literally standing next to people engaged in some of the same behavior as the not many fine people that you criticize President Trump for not condemning just as harshly. Right. So, We just have to get to a point where what's good for the goose is what's good for the gander. And the problem from mainstream media to our politics is that there is no just unilateral standard that can be set anymore. It's I feel this way when it's the people that align with me politically, and then I don't feel that way when it's people that don't align with me politically. Right. I mean, and the the funniest thing I ever hear liberals call an African American candidate is a black supremacist or a white supremacist. It's like it's like the like they call Larry Elder the the uh, the black face. Yeah, the of black. White yeah, about, like like what what is just because he's a Republican all of a sudden any black Republican is is a black white supremacist. I don't even like what is well, that. It's Joe? also this crazy thing where it says what what exactly am I saying that's so crazy? It, the, these are just facts. When I talk I've talked about our campaign, seventy percent of black children are in New York City. Uh, cannot do uh, math at grade level. Right. That's not me being hyperbolic. It's the truth. These are hardcore facts that you looked up that are on a website that are that they, are these real are, facts. These are statistics that are not being collected by some partisan group. They're the statistics that are collected by the Board of Regents. Right. Right. This is this is our government, which, by the way, is run uh, in the state of New York almost uh, throughout by Democrats. Yeah. So numbers don't lie. And for me, it's galling to have individuals who claim to be allies of black people use their position, their power, their perch uh, to say that I am not allowed to have a position on the plight of black people under policies that they have shoved down our throat. And for me, I would simply have them say, 
I agree with you the policies aren't working. I just don't agree with you on the solutions. And we can have a conversation. But don't say that my perspective that what we're doing isn't working is a lie. It is not. And don't say that somehow I'm not allowed to have an opinion that there is an alternative to what we're doing and somehow that you have the authority to say that I am uh, betraying uh, my core nature mm -hmm. because who the hell are you to tell me? That's right. You know, That's right. Who I am, what I believe in, and what my motivations are. I think people forgot that this country was built on free speech. Well, free speech, we have members of Congress advocating <laughs> to effectively abolish the First right. Amendment uh, and or, or, I guess, uh, modify the First Amendment when they choose, when it's convenient. I mean, we have the people at the World Economic Forum saying <laughs> that we need a, quote, recalibration of human rights. Uh, if that's the those terrifying phrase most people have never heard, but trust and believe that there are a lot of people with a lot of power uh, who are trying to get those words implemented in various aspects of your life. What what is your take on these um, states calling for taxpayers to pay reparations? What do you what do you think of this? But hear me out though, right? Yeah. My family, I'm a hundred percent Italian. Right. We weren't here during slavery. We don't have anything to do with slavery. We were. I'm not a colonist. Whatever you know, I'm not whatever English, Irish. What what is what is your take that a person like me who had nothing to do with slavery back in the day, which was horrible, slavery's horrible. Let's not forget. You know, we're not we're not making we're not saying it's not horrible. But what's your take with like people like me of Italian heritage and whatever heritage that wasn't here during those horrible times of this country? I think it's it's a simple so band aid solution for people who want to sleep peacefully at night mm. without actually having to pay any real price themselves. Interesting. Reparations is you putting a dollar figure on the subjugation of whole generations of people. Correct. There it's, is no price that you can pay me no. that makes me accept what was done to people that look like me in the name of this country that I love. Right. There is no dollar figure. No. Right. Talk to me about how you're going to change those outcomes. But the reality is, whatever that number is, if you gave that money and split it up equally amongst people uh, that looked like me across this country that were the descendants of slaves, even if you could prove who was and who wasn't descendants of slaves, it is not going to have the impact. In fact, it's going to have a diluted impact right. on actually trying to remedy those outcomes, particularly because of the things we've talked about. The schools that are not teaching our children how to add, how to read, and so you're going to have an injection of cash. I won't call it an injection of wealth, because it's not wealth. No. Because by the, the relative to the wealth in the world, the cash checks that you're going to be giving to people is going to have a relatively insignificant impact on the lives of most. But even if you give them that check, most of the people are not equipped with the tools they need to be able to leverage that check to get the most out of it. But then beyond that, for me, again, it's it's everything about liberal politics that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. It is simply saying, oh, I want to help these people just as long as it doesn't cost me anything directly. I want all these black children to go to great schools just as long as them going to a great school doesn't require them to come to my own child's very nice right. public school right. on the end of the block. Or private school. On, uh, or private school That's here right. on the end of the block. Mm -hmm. I want these individuals uh, to be great, but okay, let's have a conversation about the fact that all the families that were run out of Central Park they were black families. Mm -hmm. uh, are you going to give up the view of your very, very lovely apartments on Park Avenue all the way up Park Avenue South uh, to allow new buildings to be built there that will be inhabited by black people? Right. I don't think you're going to have that. Well, we can't do that. No. It's like the people 
that I talked to who are absolutely positively appalled by the idea of us having a, a, any type of 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 of, of special treatment for minorities who are going mm -hmm. going into college, and I say, okay, well, great, I get it. You're 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 opposed to that. Mm -hmm. What about the people who are getting special treatment because their great great grandfather went to Princeton or their great grandfather went to Harvard? Correct. Uh, they said, well, we can't get rid of that. That's different. How the how the fuck is it different? Yeah, no. Right? You, this this child of privilege. Uh, their great-great-grandfather has no bearing on whether they have the merits to gain entry to this university. So again, we just have to set a standard. If you're saying that all admissions should be merit-based, great, make it merit-based. But don't sit here and cry to me about how James Fitzpatrick V has a, a, a greater standing to come to this university based on something he never did, right. based off of a check he never wrote, right. and somehow that's just the way things have always been. Yeah. So I think, again, we just have to take a step back and recognize what is the goal. My goal is to make sure that we actually have schools that work, that we actually have outcomes that people deserve, and there are better ways to do that than writing a check because the lost, dirty part of that transaction is that in the memo line of that check, no matter what the dollar figure is, is going to be the phrase, we will never talk about this shit again. Right. And that is the trick, that they get you to put a dollar figure on your pain, exactly. and then they tell you, you are never to talk about what was done to you ever you again. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, it, it makes me sick how they want to put a dollar sign on a certain group of people and make them shut up. It's, 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 it's the Democrats... And when I tell people, these are facts, people. I mean, you could back me on this, Joe. Who passed all the civil rights laws? The Republicans. Oh, who started the KKK? Democrats. Oh, okay. Why do, and then when you tell a Democrat that, they're like, ugh, the parties were switched back then. Shut the fuck up. No, they weren't. Well, it's one of those things also when you talk about it. Say, look, even if you're of the opinion, right, that the parties were switched, I said, look, how, do you, how does anything get fixed? There was a time when when black people voted almost exclusively for Republicans right. until they didn't. And why didn't they vote for Republicans anymore, right? First, they voted for Republicans because Republicans were fiercely focused on the one issue black people cared about, life. Right. Like literal, literal life, life literal and literal life. freedom, yeah. right? Like we, yeah. there's one party here that wants us to be free. There's one party here that wants us to live. There's another party here that wants us to be subhuman. Mm -hmm. We're going to vote for the party that wants to give us freedom. Abraham Lincoln. Right. Now you fast forward <laughs> to the 60s. Arguably, there was a decision made amongst black people. There is one party uh, that is perhaps more hospitable to the advancements we're seeking to make. Mm -hmm. It is the Democratic Party. And so we are going to vote in mass. Repub black people left the Republican Party in mass in the 1960s, and we've never looked back, right? It's gotten worse and Why worse. is that? And so, well, I, I think, again, it, it's, the it's the reality of having people running for president mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party who were more forthcoming in concessions that would allow for what we currently recognize are the advancements uh, highlighted in the Black History in Black History Month, mm -hmm. the Civil Rights Movement, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. ML, the Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. All of those groups and all of that work was facilitated more freely by a Democratic Party. Mm. But I remind people, what was the entry point? to that mass migration of black people to the Democratic Party. It was Fannie Lou Hamer, mm -hmm. who was beaten 
by police officers mm-hmm. and also by other black people at the behest of police officers in the South, who then, in the aftermath of this beating by members of the Democratic Party, still took the burnt-up car of Swerner and Goodman up to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, begging for black people to be seated Mm -hmm. at this Democratic National Convention. Mm -hmm. Not all black people in mass, just a few black people to be seated, right? They were members of the Democratic uh, the the Democratic Freedom, the Freedom Democratic Party. Right, 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 right. So I, I say all that to say that it's not as rosy as people wanted to paint out. Right. It was not that the Democratic Party unilaterally decided that they loved the black people. No, it was beaten, bruised, brutalized black people begging for the piece of the American pie that they should have never been denied to. And then in the aftermath of that, where are we today? We are, I, we're I was just going to say that. We are, we are <laughs> arguably at a new precipice yes. where a new shift has to happen. Yes. Because at this point, I would, I would argue black people have gotten just about anything you can possibly hope to get out of a Democratic Party. And now they are the ones who are standing in the way of that next Right. series of, of, of advancements that need to be made. The school choice that they say no to. The fact that they don't actually care about the fact that we still have the most segregated schools uh, in New York City, more segregated today than Jim Crow. No one talks about it. The fact that we have a New York state where we have the highest level of child poverty in the country, in Syracuse, New York, a Democratic Party that does nothing about any of these things. A Democratic Party that is $40 billion behind in repairs for NYCHA housing, New York City public housing, that is predominantly housing African Americans. Which is federally Latinos, monitored, by the federally way. Federally monitored, That's by right. the way. That's so right. what, what are we actually talking about? At some point, people have to say, what came before was before. What's happening now is happening now. And what are the best solutions to address what's happening now? And perhaps there is not a historical remedy, but there can be some historical analysis that leads us to believe there is no shame in saying this political party is not working for me anymore. I'm going to leave and take my vote somewhere else where the things that actually benefit my family is going to come to fruition. So I feel like the Democrats are basically doing the same thing they were doing in the 60s with, with, the, with the black community. We're pr- they're promising them stuff, and then when it comes to those promises, they break them. I, I, would, I would argue it's, it's actually not that. I think arguably in the 60s, uh, they actually honored those promises. Really? I think now they realize they don't have to honor a single because promise. Because they did whatever already. Even in the 60s, you still had 30%, 40% of black people still voting in the Republican Party. Mm. Now you have, in some cases, less than 15% of black people voting for the Republican Party. Wow. And in this, in this matrix, where you have over 80%, 90% of black people voting unilaterally for one party, they don't have to actually deliver on any of those promises. Mm-hmm. Right? I tell mm-hmm. people, you know, politics is a box. Right? There are two parties, right? And each has a column, right? And it's either are you responsive to people's problems and are you actually uh, actually addressing uh, those problems and fixing them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have a Democratic Party that is responsive to the problems, but they're not actually delivering no solutions. Actions. No and actions. you have a Republican Party that arguably, from my perspective as a Republican, I take no pleasure in saying this, is both non-responsive mm-hmm. to what black people are saying mm-hmm. and also not delivering on the promises that they make in spite of the fact that they know it's true. There's no reason why Republicans could not have brought school choice as 
uh, human rights mm -hmm. to the floor when President Trump was president in 2016. We had the Senate, we had the House, and I would have dared any Democrat in a swing district to vote against it. Yeah. We didn't get it done. There's no reason why we could not have delivered on, you know, all of the things, I mean, that you talk about right now in Kentucky, you've got Rand Paul out there with the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, right, to make sure that we don't have people getting killed in no-knock warrants, right. right? That's a Republican who can find other Republican co-sponsors. I would dare Democrats to vote against it. We <laughs> have to put pressure on them to demonstrate publicly these people don't give a fuck about you. Right. These people are literally pretending they care about you, and then when there's pieces of legislation, we had you have... Tim Scott, uh, who, MSN I love that guy. Who, who MSNBC quite literally allowed an anchor on their airways to call him the slave that Harriet Tubman would have left behind. What the she fuck? She was not. She was not suspended for a single Wait, which, episode. Was that what's her name? Oh, Tiffany Cross. No, oh, I oh, thought well, it was the she, other one. She's now she's been fired. I thought but, it was the other one. No. Uh, what's her name? The one uh, that everyone hates. Joy Reid. There you go, Joy Reid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Joyful, joyful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but here's the thing, and so this this goes back to the main purpose. This, this is a man who put forth the Justice Act. Maybe it doesn't have everything in it you would like, mm -hmm. right? Does does Senator Schumer allow the Justice Act to come to the floor for a vote? No, he he, he won't. No, he won't. Even though, arguably speaking, uh, it has you know 65, 75 percent of what is in the George Floyd Justice Act, mm -hmm. but they don't want progress. They want what they want when they want it. More specifically, they didn't want the orange man with the red tie <laughs> signing the legislation. They wanted the you know septuagenarian uh, who doesn't know what decade he's in. <laughs> they wanted him to sign it. That's funny. So That's funny. Uh, this, is, this is just uh. par for the course. The needs of black people are on the back burner simply because Democrats know they only have to talk about it. They don't have to deliver it. Mm -hmm. And we have a Republican Party that's too stupid to actually put forth the actual legislation that we know provides opportunity for every single person of every color and every creed in this country. Changing subjects. What's your opinion about this George Santos, Santos fella? <laughs> it just keeps getting weirder every George, day. George, George, have you ever met him? I've I've met George. I, I What's at, I, I would say uh, George and I were were were, were pretty tight pals. I call, okay. I call in the campaign. I'm, I'm not asking he you seems, to you know. He, he seems I get I'll put it this way. Uh, uh, it, it's disappointing, right? Because the people say you know people say, do you know George? And I say, does anybody know George? Um, and, true. I, and I take no pleasure in saying that, right? right? Yeah. Um, I, I wish ill on no person. Uh, all of this was brought on George by by George. Mm -hmm. it, it's when is enough and is enough. Like when is McCarthy going to be like, all right, we got to do something about this I, guy? Look, I, and I, then I, they put him on a committee when it, he lied. He had an MBA. Put it put it this way. <laughs> I, I think we have a citizen. We, we have a representative republic, right? Mm -hmm. We elect people to make decisions on our behalf. Mm -hmm. The people that get to decide on the suitability of George Santos are the people that live in New York's third congressional district. Right. We do not have recalls for federal elections, and certainly not for Congress, and for good measure, the government would not work. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it, basically, we've turned Congress into a, a bunch of professional fundraisers who have to raise money 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, right. to make sure that they can get reelected every two years, mm -hmm. uh, which is a nightmare already that is basically imperiling democracy and puts the needs of the stakeholders over their responsibility to their constituents. Mm. That's a whole separate issue. Mm. But I say that because uh, there is no 
the reason for George Sanders to be removed today under the laws of this nation. Right. As much as we know that he lied about everything, lying about your resume is not a crime. As much as we know that there are potentially campaign finance laws that were broken, uh, in this country you are innocent until proven guilty. No charges mm -hmm. have been brought. No verdict has been rendered. So as it stands right now, uh, he is a, a, a man without a country in many regards. Mm -hmm. I would argue that he probably shouldn't have been placed on any committees. That's just my personal opinion. I agree with you. Specifically because, uh, to be quite honest, we don't know where the money came from. Correct. And he won't tell us where the money came from. Correct. So, I mean, if George Santos had come out here and said, I told all these lies, but more specifically, there are questions about where the money came from. Here are the books from my company for the last two years. Here are the books from my campaign. Mm -hmm. Let it be very said. You can say a lot of things about George Santos, but you can't say that I took any money illicitly or that somehow I am right. controlled by some illicit man. And I'd say put him on any committee you want to put him on. He hasn't done those things. And so from my perspective, there is no power to take him out of Congress because when you take George Santos out of Congress, you can take anyone out of Congress for any reason, particularly if they haven't broken any laws or haven't been convicted of breaking any laws. But uh, I just think that it's an unfortunate situation that politically speaking, uh, in perils, uh, somebody like Esposito in NY4, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be people showing up to vote in November of 2024 uh, who think that George Santos is their congressman in New York 4 because of the amount of coverage that this is receiving, right? So I just think that, look, it, 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 George uh, has to find his own way forward in life. I don't anticipate that's going to be in politics after this term. Um, I think, again, the, the real legal jeopardy that he faces is not related to anything he said about his resume, mm -hmm. but certainly about where did the money come from. If you were getting evicted over a sum of $10,000 in 2019, how the hell do you have $700,000 to loan your campaign in 2021? Uh, that's a, that is, I mean, if, if you've got the secret to that type of financial success, uh, you should put it in the book and sell it. There are a lot of people who would want to hear about it. So uh, that's, that's the reality. Um, most people who have the ability to loan their campaign $700,000 uh, don't have a sibling that's getting evicted over the sum of $50,000, as we just found out this past week. Mm -hmm. So, look, there's just, there is a lot of sadness baked into this story about George. You know, people focus on uh, what I call the, the sensational aspects of the story. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's got a family. He's got a right. sister. Uh, there are people I, that believe. In I him. don't even care. He dressed up as drag. Whatever. Yeah, if you want to do that, do that. I'm just got, more concerned about his, his got integrity. He's and, and, yeah, and that's the yeah, issue, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and for me, it's also the other side. The Democrats who are only love lives here, but then they want to make fun of the right. fact that he's that he was been in drag. Drags, right? I know. They I only know. love lives here, but you've got Richie Torres grinning like a Cheshire cat every day on the news. Wait, you know, and, and the Democrats who want drag queens to be in school too right. right that's the same ones we're talking yes, about oh, oh okay okay just making sure <laughs> so it's it's yeah. it's crazy for me like that that's the the sad part right where i think you know republicans rightfully so do say look uh, you know there is a there is a legal process and it should play out and other than that democrats should shut up and we shouldn't give them any ammunition because to me Unless if Richie Torres wants to pass the Santos Act to make sure that people don't lie uh, to the constituents, I have no problem with that. Of course. But I do have a problem when he starts showing up at George's office, you know, in his best Sunday church suit, smiling ear to ear. <laughs> here's the piece of legislation. Here's the ethics violation. Right. That's not about dignity for Congress. That's not about dignity for your constituents. That's about something else that is evil 
and vile right. and mean-spirited and ugly. And I think if you're one person who simply says, I don't want the ugliness in my politics anymore, then you should demand that from both parties. Right. And I think this notion where we accept the ugliness from those we agree with and then we condemn it from those we disagree with, uh, that's part of the reason why this country is going to hell in the handbasket. Well, Richie Torres gets all gun-ho on that bill. He better remember if he ever lied to his constituents and if that's going to come back and bite him in the ass. Well, look, and I think also it becomes very difficult what constitutes a lie right. under the law right. of, of whatever. I, I just think that, again, you have to... It's, it's an unfortunate scenario where you have to examine it because no one's really done what George has done to the extent that George has done it, right? I, I, it, <laughs> these are... These are some whoppers, uh, to say the least. But look, there, look, there's a there's a senator right now in Connecticut who, for <laughs> for years, said that he served in the Vietnam War right. and did not. And I would argue that's about one of the worst things you can do. Absolutely, uh, lie stolen valor, stolen valor. That's right. In a war that many people uh, served in, in spite of the fact they didn't agree with it, uh, to steal that valor, as you said, I, I think is is unforgivable mm -hmm. and yet there he is one of the longest tenured members of the united states senate so <laughs> yeah. again pick and choose uh which liars you want to condemn i've got the smartest guy in the history of syracuse law school uh who apparently attended the black church every sunday before he went to uh his regular church who apparently uh used to argue and fight with a guy named corn puff, corn puff. when he was down there lifeguarding at the black swimming pool uh joe biden <laughs> the man's told every lie under the book uh, so yeah, he's, he's... I, I think again if we're going to say we want integrity in our politics, good, we should, and we should demand it. But we have to demand it from well, everybody. Well, if you want integrity, you've got to get rid of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, what's, in, what's in store for the future of Mr. Joe Pinion? Look, Tell I, me. I, I think you know, finding ways to stay engaged. Uh, look, I, I remind people running for U.S. Senate in 2022 was not on my bingo card list. If right. it was, I would have started much earlier. Right, of course. Uh, but of I course. think it was one of those things where... Uh, I was in the right place at the right time uh, to deliver a message about a state that was hurting and in pain. Mm -hmm. And I think in spite of the fact that we didn't necessarily have the resources we would have liked, uh, the outcome does speak to the fact uh, that we were correct in our calculus, that there was Absolutely. a pathway to beat Chuck Schumer, that there were New Yorkers who were tired of this stale stewardship. And I think moving forward, finding ways to uh, continue to remind the people of New York that they are not powerless over their own lives. Hmm. And, you know, there's some private sector opportunities I've been looking at, some uh, opportunities to work with those in politics. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, it should be interesting. You've got Kristen Gillibrand who just announced uh, she's running for re-election. So I, I would note it's a quite an early announcement. Mm. Uh, I think the writing has been on the wall here. Perhaps they can't just mail it in and then do their 12 months of vote for me again. Right, so, right. Uh, she's not going to fall victim to the same thing that happened to Chuck there, but uh, she is just at the other side of the same coin, failing to deliver for this state. Uh, a state without senators they can trust is a state without the power to control their own destiny. So got something right. has to be done. So stay tuned. we got a lot of stuff to talk about. Well, Joe, thank you for coming on, man. You're uh, always welcome on the Sunday Sauce, and uh, good luck in your future endeavors. I'm, I'm going to see you in office one day. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to see it. I already know it's coming. Eh, look, man, like I got to go repair my savings account right now. Oh, jeez, right? yeah. You, yeah. Spent, you spent 14 months of your life uh, not making any money. Uh, it's it, it, it all of a sudden you just see the numbers going in one direction. So yeah. I would like to see them go in the other direction for a little bit. I got a I got a mama, a daddy, and a dog uh, that that would all like to see me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I hope, see me I hope, bringing, I bringing home so, a little man. bit more bacon. So. Yeah. Uh, first we first we uh, stop the bleeding, then we figure out how to save this country. That That's right. Need. That's right. All right, Joe. Thanks for stopping by, and we'll see you guys next week.